we kick off today uh, our Just Lead, the second part of our Just Lead series, and it's all about heroes uh, is kind of how we're focusing on this one. Every one of us has heroes or has had heroes throughout our life, but one of our problems is this. We either idealize our hero or more so we idolize our heroes, and we hold them up and put them up into something that no human hero can ever truly support. And then when they come crashing down, as they do, we're devastated by it. So as we continue our series from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel, which really in the uh, Hebrew text is just one book. It wasn't divided up into two books until much later, so it's really one story. But the transition from 1 Samuel to 2 Samuel is a transition from all the transitions we saw from Samuel to Saul to David being anointed as king to really focusing on one person's life. One of the greatest heroes, you could say, of the Old Testament, King David. And what's going to be interesting about this journey is it's going to help us see heroes more properly. Because really the gist of this book is two things. How you're going to see success in David's life as he follows God. You're going to see sin. Some incredibly huge mistakes that David makes. Mistakes that you think, how could this guy be considered one of the greatest heroes in the Bible when he's done this kind of stuff? Because he's human like every one of us. And we're going to see the consequences of each of those things. The consequences of him when he's faithful to God and the consequences of when he falls and blows it and how it turns out for him. And hopefully from that, it'll help us realize that any earthly hero we might have is never to be idolized or idealized. Instead, they are to point us to the only true and great hero that we really have, and that's Jesus Christ. So I hope that you see that as we start our series today. And in fact, it's interesting in this first one, it's uh, fascinating, as Alex even mentioned at communion, that we're going to see a transition take place today. Uh, Saul's going to pass away, and David's going to, you know, eventually, as we're going to see in the next couple of weeks, transition into the king. And we've known that from the last series, that David had been anointed and was eventually going to become the king. But transitions are always difficult. Because as people, we naturally struggle with change. And whenever a transition happens, we struggle with loyalty to the past person or loyalty to the new person or how do we handle this? How do we, you know, how do we respond to these transitions and how do we work through them because it's just change and we don't know how things are going to turn out. And so today's message is both very personal to us as a church and very practical in terms of how we're going to see two characters in this story in 2 Samuel chapter 1 respond to this transition. And my prayer is, even though this transition is very different than ours, the fact is every transition has some core things that are common to it. And my prayer is, is as we walk through this story today, that we could glean some principles of how to respond in our transition, how we as a church can go forward in a healthy way, a God-honoring way, as we walk through a significant transition in our own church. So what you're going to see in the story and what the author seems to highlight is Saul's going to die, he's died prior, and now we're going to see how two people respond to Saul's death. One is a negative, ungodly response, and one is a positive, godly response to it. And from that, we'll learn, I think, some principles of how we as a church 
can navigate a transition as well. So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to 2 Samuel chapter 1 today. 2 Samuel chapter 1. And we're going to work through this whole chapter. Really, in this chapter, we see the situation that Saul has passed away, and then we're going to see the two responses from two different people that the narrator is obviously highlighting because he puts them right up next to each other in the story. And we're going to have to read a little bit between the lines by going to some other places to draw out the principles of why uh, we can determine which response is proper, but that's how we read the Bible and how we understand it. So 2 Samuel chapter 1, in your worship guide, there's a spot for you to jot down some notes. Uh, We start our small groups this week, uh, so you're going to have a whole guide in there. So the front page of that is where you can jot down your notes. Let's pray, and then we'll jump into this passage. Father God, we love you and praise you and thank you that we have the privilege of gathering as your church every single week and opening up your word together. And Lord, it never ceases to amaze me, even as we've been preparing for this part of the series and I've been reading through the book of 2 Samuel to, to see just how real you are, God. If, if these were just humans that had, were trying to create a religion and just write down some things and get people to follow, they would never portray the heroes of the Bible with such realness and rawness like they do David. In fact, David, maybe more than any other character in the Bible, is probably the most rounded out character we get to see in the scriptures. It speaks more of him than almost any other person in the Bible, and we see his strengths and the good things he brings to the table, and then we're gonna see uh, some pretty awkward moments with him. I can tell you this right now, God, I'm glad you didn't choose to use my life as an example and pen every single moment of my life because it would be pretty humbling when we stop and reflect some of the stupid things that we've done, some of the ways that we have tried to do this on our own and not trust you. But God, it's also encouraging in a way that if you have heroes because of what your son Jesus Christ has done for us that could make as big a mistakes as David has, then Lord, really any of us could be used by you. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Because it's not about where we started, it's not about our socioeconomic class, it's not about our race, our gender, or our education, or what we bring to the table. It's about who Jesus Christ is and what he has done to redeem sinners. So Lord, as we begin this journey, help us to see what you want us to see in David's life so that we might maybe one day be called a man or a woman after your own heart, just like he was. Ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Second Samuel Chapter 1, we're going to start with the first 10 verses. So we're going to see two things. I'll need a little grease. Uh, A negative response or an ungodly response and a godly response and and glean some principles from that in the time we have, what little time we have remaining. But we can do it. 2 Samuel 1, it says, After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag, and on the third day, behold, a man from Saul's camp 
with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. So you have this guy coming, the dirt on his head and torn clothes is symbolic of mourning. So he's pretending he's mourning as he comes, or at least on the outside he is. So David said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, by chance, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa. Now, where Saul was, if you go back to chapter 31 of the previous book, where Saul was in this point, he had retreated to a spot which he wasn't like in the middle of a city. He was out in the middle of nowhere up on this mountain running from the Philistines who were coming after him. So for some guy to just be hanging out up there was a little bit odd. You notice he just said, hey, you know, by chance I just happened to be where they retreated to, you know, hanging out by myself miles from any civilization. So you kind of have to question a little bit, you know, where this guy's coming from, and we're going to see that as we go. He said, and Saul was leaning on his spear, and behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. Okay, that, real important, you got to underline that because that's a key phrase that's going to give us some information later on. And he said to me, stand beside me and kill me. For anguish, this is Saul supposedly speaking, for anguish has seized me and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm and I have brought them here to my Lord. Now, that's what we read in this story. Now, if you've read 1 Samuel, which we went through last semester, and normally you would read the two together, you would know that this is a different story than what's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 31 about Saul's death. In fact, if we jump there, we can see in 1 Samuel chapter 31, it'll come up here, uh, what actually took place. You flip to the next slide, the 1 Samuel 31 slide. There we go. So in 2 Samuel 1, what we have is what the Amalekites said happened. The narrator's recording what the Amalekites said. And this is the importance of how we interpret the Bible. When you read narrative literature, like 1 and 2 Samuel is telling the story, the narrator is telling you the story as it happened. And he might be quoting someone or what someone said. And so you can't take everything that's written as narrative as being the truth in the sense of what God wants us to do. It may be true, meaning it may be what that person said, or it may be what they did, but it may not be the truth of how God wants us to respond in a situation. That's why it's important to never isolate a passage in the Bible and just interpret it as it is. You have to see it in light of all of Scripture. And so here the Amalekite told David one story, but the narrator who is actually God's written writer through the Holy Spirit, told us and recorded another story in chapter 31 about the details of what happened to Saul. And it says here that the battle pressed hard against Saul and the archers found him and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. 
but his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Now any Israelite would know this as part of their law. No one could kill the king. That was God's anointed leader. Good or bad, he was the leader. You could not as an individual kill him. So obviously his armor bearer said, I'm not going to step into that. That goes totally against God's word. So it says, therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. So the narrator tells us that Saul killed himself and the armor bearer waited there until he saw that he was dead and then did the same to himself. And if you read 1 Chronicles chapter 10, 1 Chronicles is another uh, two books that tell the history of Israel from the Judaic line or the Davidic line and the priestly line and tell it in a more theological manner. You'll see that it records the exact same story about Saul's death there, consistent with 1 Samuel 31. So if you would have been reading this in its context and you came to that story about the Amalekite, you'd know something was up. Hmm, this story doesn't jive with what I just read. So what we see here is my first point. Beware of ungodly responses to transition. Beware of ungodly responses to transition. What do you think is going on here with this Amalekite? Why do you think he would come? Why do you think he would just happen to be there? And I have a, a whole other theory as to what he, why he was probably there, but that's another story for another time. But he was there. He grabs Saul's crown. He grabs his arm. It takes him three days to get from where he's at to where David is. And you can imagine during that whole time, he's thinking, okay, how am I going to communicate this? What do you think was going on in his mind? What do you think that Amalekite was trying to accomplish by sharing the story he did and bringing those articles of Saul's crown and armlet to David. We all know that, right? He's trying to get on David's good side. Now, most likely, he was a servant of Saul. He probably was an assistant to the armor bearer, like a servant to him, because he was an Amalekite. And if you know the Amalekites, and we know that from 1 Samuel, they were a people that God had told Saul to completely wipe out because they had been horrible to the Israelites when they were traveling from Egypt to the promised land. And God said, once you get into your land, I will command you to go back and wipe that wicked nation off the face of the earth. So obviously they had no affection for Israel. And oftentimes, as we're going to see in a moment, when they would, since Saul didn't wipe them out, he grabbed some of them and probably used them as servants. He was probably an assistant to his armor bearer. That's why he was there watching this whole thing. And he saw an opportunity to capitalize for himself, didn't he? And that's exactly what seems to be happening. He's taking advantage, he's telling a lie, and he's telling David, hey, you know, I was there and I took him out, I killed him just like he said, and, and trying to feign loyalty to Saul, but more so loyalty to David, saying I took his crown and I took his armlet, and he knows, man, I'm, on, I'm kind of in tedious ground. Saul has taken me in, and his regime has taken me in, but consider where he's at. I'm not sure if this next regime is gonna take me in, so I better do something to put myself in a good spot. And so he manipulates. He tells a lie. And he seeks to get on the good side of this new administration. So that's one response we see. The second we see in David when he hears the news in chap uh, verses 11 and 12. Follow along to see what he says here. 
says, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. So look at David's response. Here's my second point. Is he, he, he mourns, he grieves, he recognizes from the big picture, wow, God's chosen leader has been destroyed in battle. This, whether he had a personal issue with Saul or not, David's able to step back and say, given the big picture, this isn't good for Israel as a whole. When its leader is, sl- is slain, its people are slain, when its protector is slain at that moment, and David actually mourns this loss and sees it in the bigger picture, even apart from his personal issues that he's had with Saul. And here's my second point. It's real straightforward. Is, is commit, beware of ungodly responses, but commit to a God-honoring response in transition. Commit to a God-honoring response to transition. See, this reveals David's heart for God and for God's word. More than anything else, regardless of his issues with Saul, David is more concerned about what God thinks of him than he is about what Saul thinks or even what people think. And he responds in a way that honors him. Here's a few passages that kind of show this throughout scripture. Proverbs 24 says this, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it and be displeased and turn away his anger from him. There's a general principle of how we as Christians or God followers, you know, as Israelites, should respond to our enemies. We shouldn't be pleased when they fall. We shouldn't rejoice in that. And it actually says if we do, God may turn his anger away from them. And, and the, the context is he may turn his, his anger away from that person and put it on you and, and discipline his own child. The idea is don't rejoice. Let God take care of it because he does a much better job than we do. First Peter chapter 2, Peter says this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now this was written in New Testament times, a little later than David's time, but the principle is still there. Think of the emperor of Rome, which is when Peter would have written this, in a season when the emperor was persecuting Christians. It was one of the hardest times in the history of the church ever. And yet Peter is writing, you honor the emperor. Doesn't mean you necessarily agree with everything that they're doing. You may strongly disagree with it. But you show honor to them because the Bible tells us that God has placed these leaders, he has sovereignly allowed them to be in place for his bigger and greater plan that we don't fully understand. It's not hard to see how poorly we've done this as a nation. In fact, it's sad to see that Christians are some of the worst people when it comes to honoring our leaders. We're often the most critical and, and slanderous in a public manner of any of the people that are out there. And it, this is a charge for us as we see how David responded to a man who was in pretty rough shape. Saul was a, a, not a very good leader. 
And yet I think how often we speak negatively and disrespect and dishonor our current leaders today in our nation. And they're not nearly as bad as maybe even Saul. They haven't tried to personally kill you or put you to death. These are the people whom God has sovereignly allowed to lead our nation. Doesn't mean we have to agree with them. And we may have very strong convictions against some of the things they're doing, Republican or Democrat. That's not the issue. The issue is, do we honor God by honoring those people whom he's put in those spots? And how do we speak about them in a respectable manner? David was able to model that in an amazing way. Let's go on and see what, what happens as he continues. It says in verse 13, it says, and David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? Remember he'd asked him this before, who are you? And he answered, I am an Amalekite. Look at what he says here. And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. That's really important. He's not just an Amalekite, he's the son of a sojourner. And that's a very key word in the Old Testament. So David said to him, how is it you are not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. Now this is, maybe seems harsh or strange to us, but it revealed this truth in God's law very clearly that a sojourner, which was more than just an alien, a sojourner was what we would call today a resident alien. In this case, he was an Amalekite from another nation, but a sojourner was someone in the Old Testament that would come and submit to live under the rules and guidelines of the Israelite nation. They would make that nation their nation, and they would worship their God as that. And God made uh, a provision for them to say when a sojourner comes, when someone of another nation is willing to forsake their truths and come and accept the truths of the Israelite nation, then regardless of the fact that they're not an Israelite, you treat them like they are. They were a sojourner. That's what that term means. So David, in this sense, when he sees that, and, and we get that extra information, if he was an Amalekite, David should have just wiped him out right at that moment because the Amalekites were to be wiped out. But this guy was the son of a sojourner, so obviously his dad had come and made that commitment, and he, if he was still living with the Israelites, should have made the same commitment to saying, I am under the laws of Israel. In fact, look at what Leviticus 24 says about this, and they would have known this. He says, you shall have the same rule for the sojourner and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So Israel allowed non-Israelites to live amongst them and live under the same rule if they committed to living as an Israelite in a sense. And so what David is doing here is basically saying, oh, so you're saying you're a sojourner? That you've made a commitment to live under the Israelite rules? Well, then you would know that an Israelite that kills the king, that's treason you should be killed. So David confronts this Amalekite's divisive lying and lack of integrity, and he doesn't allow it to go on. See, if you run into people who are demonstrating disloyalty to God in our process, you address it. I think that's what makes grace a healthy church is that when people begin to be divisive or talk about things or, or gossip about things, we confront it head on. Now, you don't have to kill the person, okay? 
just saying that it's not quite that level. This is a little different situation, obviously. But you should confront disloyalty. You confront divisiveness. And in this process, and anytime there's a process or a transition, let me just talk about the things that are just natural in a transition and be honest with it. Whenever there's a transition, you always get a sense of two sides. You get those who are loyal to the past person, and you get those who are loyal to the new person. There's nothing wrong with that. That's part of the process. The problem is the world's view, like this Amalekite, is that loyalty can only be to one or the other. It's an either or. I'm either Republican or I'm Democrat. And when I get on this, then everything the Republicans do, oh, it's just perfect. Or if everything the Democrats do, oh, it's perfect. And everything the other side does is evil and from the devil. Right? We are either or. When if we are honest, there are redeemable things in each party that if we're honest, we could go, you know what, we could probably learn from the Democrats from this, and we could learn from the Republicans in this. But you know what? The Republicans aren't doing this very well, and the Democrats aren't doing this very well. But we don't do that because we have to be totally loyal to one side or the other. But God's kingdom doesn't work that way when you're talking about within his kingdom. And what David is so admirable about is David's not all hung up about him and his advancement. He's hung up about God's kingdom. And David recognizes that we can honor the king that's there now, and even when he's gone, without it having any effect on the fact that he was the incoming king and the next person. And so there's two wrongs that can happen in a transition. One is you stay too loyal to the present leader because you've just known that person your whole life or you've been involved with him. And that's not gonna be healthy for this church. For you to say, oh, I, I hope Chad doesn't go, and I hope we're gonna pray that he never leaves and he's here the rest of his life until he dies, because at some point I'm gonna die. I'm not gonna live forever. So you're gonna have to deal with this no matter what. That's not healthy. It doesn't mean you can't have a loyalty and affection to one, but you can do it to both. You can say, you know what? He's God's leader right now by the grace of God, and Eddie is going to be that leader in the future. I can honor them both. I can honor this present one while I prepare to honor the next one. And to cling to me and not release and move on to whom God's brought in is every bit as wrong. I'm not flattered by that. Well, I might be wrongly flattered, but it's not healthy for this church. As vice versa, those who, you know, there's going to be people that are going to be loyal to Eddie, and that's okay. That's a good thing going forward. But it's a both and in God's kingdom. You can honor the present leadership and be prepared to honor the, the, the future leadership as well. It's not a this one versus that one. That's how the world operates. And that's when gossip and division starts to divide a church. And a church is bigger than its leaders. Are you with me on that? And that's what's so beautiful about this is here's David. I mean... I think I've only tried to kill you one time. Is that twice? Okay. So Saul, Saul tried three times, probably more than three times to take David out. David had every reason to disregard Saul and not honor him. And look at what he was willing to do. We have a much better situation. So we have no excuse for not honoring each person in the process and trusting God with the bigger picture. Look at what David goes on. We'll wrap up with this as he continues. This is what I think is pretty amazing. 
He says in verse 17, as it continues, David actually writes this lament. He, his lamentation over Saul and Jonathan, his son, and he said, it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. And he said, your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. So the anointed king was considered the kind of the glory of Israel. He was their representation between them and, and God in many ways in a political sense. How the mighty have fallen. He says, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. And what he's saying here is this, is man, this is sad that the leader has been slain. The leader of God's people at this point is slain. And and he's saying, don't tell it to the Philistines. Those are Philistine cities. Because when God's people, or, or there's an unhealthy situation like that with God's people, it looks bad. It reflects bad on God to God's enemies. The same is true in a church. When there's division and slander within a church, you know who also is damaged by it? Not just our reputation as a church, but more so God's reputation. Do you know what the enemies of God in our city would love to see happen? Is you and I be divided. This church be slanderous. Oh, yeah, there's those Christians. They're just like all the other Christians. They're talking about this, talking about that. You want to glorify God in our city? You want people to stop and go, wow, that church is so different than any other church I've ever been to. I've never even heard about that before. Then honor God in a way that most churches don't do well. That will glorify him instead of us being all about our agenda or our little issues that we might have. I believe how we handle this, as we saw it in the past, we saw it with the previous transition with me. When we honor God, God has honored a church that honors him as they walk through the process. And David is a beautiful example of that. He talks about a curse that happens. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of the offering. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. So he talks about, in a sense, where Saul died. That part of Israel was like a curse. This is where the king died. And so part of the land experienced this curse because of it. It's not good for God's people uh, Period. And he says, from the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. David's acknowledging the fact that Saul was a warrior, he was a king. He brought protection. As many mistakes as he had, he brought protection to Israel and even provision in his battles. I'm going to just kind of end with this, but with this thought. I, I know it's sometimes hard for us to maybe look at this and say, how could David or why could David have such grief and say such kind things towards Saul? Saul had tried many times to take David's life to wipe him out as God's anointed king? And that's a, that's a hard question. I looked at that and said, wow, how could Saul be so kind? Why would he be so kind to, to Saul in his death? Then it struck me. Do you know what's even a more difficult question? That God would be so kind to you and I upon our death. So kind that he would be willing to declare 
our righteous deeds in Christ Jesus, that he would be willing to overlook our sins because you know what? You and I didn't just attempt to wipe out God's true and greater anointed king. We actually did. It was your sin and my sin that resulted in him being nailed to that cross. He took your punishment and my punishment upon himself so that when we put our trust in that king, when we leave the kingdom of Saul that's all about me and me being on the throne and we submit ourselves to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, he says, Chad, upon your death, you're not going to hear about your sin. I will simply declare the righteous things that I have done through your broken life. It's like, wow. After I actually caused you death, Lord, you would be so kind to me. And he says that to every one of his children that's placed their faith and trust in him, that has taken their solishness off the throne, that I need to be in control, and I need to dictate how things go, and instead submitted themselves to Jesus Christ, the true and greater anointed king. So church, I'm not saying this transition will be easy. And I'm not saying there aren't reasons to criticize anyone involved. You want reasons? I can give you probably a dozen more than I already have. Because you probably don't know the half of all the issues and, and struggles and weaknesses that I have. But it's not about honoring me. It's not about honoring Eddie or any of the leaders in and of themselves. It's about honoring the God of this church. And it's about honoring the true and anointed Son of God who's got it all in his hands if we'll distrust him in that process. Let's pray.